This morning, I invite you to take out your your Bibles, not your handles, your Bibles, and turn to the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark. We're beginning our study of Mark this morning. Mark chapter one, and our text is going to come from Mark one one through eight. Well, I want you to imagine for a moment. Imagine that it's 65 AD and you are a Roman citizen living in Rome. And a few months before, the entire city, or most of the city, about 80% of it was burnt to the ground. Now the rumors were that the Caesar, Nero, actually was the one that did it. But to distract from his actions... And to get a scapegoat or a fall guy, what he did was he began to round up all of your friends, all of your family, because a year before you had become a Christian, because your mother had heard the gospel, and then she shared the gospel with your father, your father and your entire family came to believe in the gospel, and so you were part of a new community called Christians. Nero started rounding up and persecuting Christians in the city of Rome. It had been a delightful time to be a Christian before then because more and more people were coming to believe, but now there was systematic persecution. I want you to imagine that your mother had been captured by Roman guards, that she was covered in animal skins and thrown to wild dogs and ripped to shreds. That your brothers and sisters, your your little brothers and sisters, were also captured, were dipped in hot tar, put on spikes, lit on fire so that Nero could have the light in his garden at night from your brother and sister. And your dad was thrown in the Colosseum with other Christians and wild animals were, were let loose, tigers and lions, and they were ripped to shreds. You're the only one left. Now, in that moment, you would be asking yourself, is it worth it? Is it worth it to believe in this Jewish man who went to the cross, who died and was resurrected on the third day? You would be tempted to leave Jesus Christ. And you would ask yourself, is it possibly enough to die for? Well, that might be our imagination, but that's the backdrop of the writing of the Gospel of Mark. We know that Mark wrote his Gospel in AD 65. He lived in Rome, and he himself watched the Apostle Peter crucified upside down because he dared to proclaim the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And Mark, no doubt, watched while thousands upon thousands of other Christians were killed and martyred in unbelievable ways. And the backdrop is he wrote this gospel to a group of people who would be asking that question, is it worth it? Is the gospel of Jesus Christ true? Is it enough to die for? Well, that's an important question for us as well. That's a question that we need to address as well. And that's why we're studying 
the Gospel of Mark. Is it worth it? Is it true? So, uh, let me read this for us. Again, we're just going to read the first uh, eight verses of this Gospel. And I want you to see the way that Mark begins the telling of his Gospel. Hear God's good and kind word to you today. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. And the voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed in camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locust and wild honey. And while he preached, and he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray and ask for the Lord's help in understanding his word. Pray with me. Father, we thank you once again for giving us this word, and we thank you for the courage of your servant, John Mark, in writing this gospel account for us, and for your preserving this account so that we uh, can be encouraged in the gospel even this morning. I pray that your son, Jesus Christ, would be the one that we behold, that we see in all of his glory, and that we come to understand even more and even better the gospel of your grace. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So I want to see this in three ways today, uh, just three ways. Kenny remarked to me this week, your sermons always have three points. Yes, well, sometimes they have two, sometimes they have four. Uh, but I was reminded when he said that uh, in seminary we studied a sermon that had 96 points. Just three, so you're welcome, okay? <laughs> three points. We see gospel purpose in verse 1. Secondly, gospel promise in verses 2 through 3, and then gospel prophet in verses 4 through 8. First of all, the gospel purpose in verse 1. Mark is answering the question, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? He begins quickly. He gets right to the heart of the matter. He doesn't start the way the other gospel accounts start. Matthew begins with Jesus and his genealogy, starting at Abraham. Uh, Luke begins with the story of John the Baptist's parents uh, and how he was born. John begins his account not with Abraham, not with uh, uh, the, uh, John the Baptist's parents, but he begins actually his account way back in the beginning of almost everything, the beginning of God's creation of the world, uh, even before that. But, but here Mark, he starts Quickly, and he gets right to the heart of the matter, telling us who is Jesus Christ. So he says, first of all, that Jesus is the Christ, and then secondly, that he is the Son of God. And I want you to understand something, that, that Mark is writing to persuade us. He's not objective. He isn't saying to you, here are some truths, and, and I want you to evaluate these things. He's writing to persuade us that Jesus Christ is these two things and the rest of his gospel account is about him being the Christ and him being the Son of God. 
What does it mean that he is the Christ? You need to understand something. That is not his last name. His last name is not Christ. But actually, it's his title. It's his title. What does the word Christ mean? Christ means Messiah. It's the Greek version of the Hebrew word Messiah. And what does Messiah mean? It means the anointed one. Uh, Essentially, the Messiah was the one that was to come. He was to be the kingly ruler in the line of David who was to rule and reign for God on earth. Kings were anointed in the Old Testament and therefore all of the Jewish people, everyone, they were hoping for the Messiah. You see, Christ, the Christ was Yahweh's instrument of salvation for his people. And more than that, he was the longing of history. The Christ was the longing of history. What do I mean? Uh, you men, I want you to think back, those of you who are married, and, and think back in the time before you got married. Uh, all of us felt like there was this huge hole in our heart, um, and we wanted it to be filled with the love of our life. We had this longing for our bride, and we, we felt like until we found our bride, we were not going to be fulfilled Mark is saying that Jesus is the longing of history. That all of history is actually about him. Everything that's happened up to this point is about him. And everything that's going to come after Jesus is about him. Because, in fact, as we read other places, Jesus is the one that created the world. That's a huge claim. That is a massive thing to say that this one is the reason for the entire world, and that's Jesus. Secondly, he tells us that Jesus is the Son of God. Uh, we read that and we think, well, that you know, that could mean a, a few different things. Uh, at various points in the Old Testament Scripture, angels are called son, sons of God. Uh, kings, even at various points, are called sons of God. But more than that, Mark wants us to understand that Jesus is God Himself. Jesus is the unique Son of God because sons in this day were equal with their father. Um, You would be considered as uh, as a a child of your father, especially the firstborn child, to be equal with your father. And so calling Jesus the Son of God is to call Jesus God himself. And so uh, he asked the question, or he answers the question for us, is Jesus worth dying for? Remember the background, persecution is happening. All these people are being killed and persecuted and martyred in the most heinous and disgusting way possible. And he's he's answering the question, is he worth it? Well, Jesus is the Messiah. He's the point of history. And more than the point of history, he's actually the point of your life. He fulfills every desire, every longing of your heart. And then secondly, he's God himself. So what's it like to meet that God? I want you to think for a moment about the Old Testament and and the prophet Isaiah. Because Isaiah was a a prophet. He was was operating uh, as God's messenger on his earth. And he was doing these things and and telling God's people about God. And then Isaiah chapter 6, he's given a vision. And we're told in the, in the year that King Uzziah died, he saw, he saw the Lord 
high and lifted up. He saw the glory of God and and the seraphim, the, the angels flying around, crying out to each other, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Isaiah sees and gets a glimpse of God. He falls to his face and he says, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And then the Lord sends an angel with a coal from the fire and touches Isaiah's lips. And he says, Behold, your sins are cleansed. And then he asks a question of Isaiah, or or just a random question. Who will go? Who will I send to tell the world about me? And Isaiah says, Here I am. I will go. And then, uh, this is interesting, but in John chapter 12, we're told that Isaiah didn't merely just see a generic God, but actually we're told that he saw Jesus Christ himself. Isn't that amazing? Isaiah saw God. His sins were cleansed by Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. And then after that, he said, I will go because he saw the glory of Jesus Christ. Is Jesus worth dying for? Isaiah's answer is yes. Yes, he is. And Mark's answer to us and his reminder to us is yes, Jesus is worth it. So we see first the gospel purpose. Secondly, we see gospel promise in verses 2 through 3. What happens then is he immediately goes from proclaiming who Jesus Christ is to talking about, once again, the Old Testament. And these are quotes from the Old Testament. He says, as it is written. And he says in Isaiah, the prophet. Well, Isaiah is, uh, is basically the title of all of the section of the prophets. From Isaiah to Malachi, Isaiah stands as the title for that group of writings in the Old Testament. Isaiah is the first of those writings And then Malachi is the last. Well, here he gives two quotations from the Old Testament. The first one is from the very last of those books. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. That's Malachi. I'm going to send my messenger before the Messiah comes. And then the quotation from Isaiah. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. And Malachi's message is this, the Messiah is going to come. The Messiah is going to come. Trust in the promises of God. And then Isaiah's message is, he tells us all about the work of the Messiah, what he's going to do. He's going to come. He's going to suffer for his people. He's going to face persecution and death as well. And then he tells us that a prophet is going to come before him and he's going to preach about him. So what's the point in all of that? Well, it's reminding us that the things that happen are not random. In fact, 600 to 800 years before Christ came, all of this was promised by God. And because the persecution that that in Mark's day in in 65 AD that they're going uh, going through, it seems... So random. It seems so out of control. It seems like there's nothing in the world that is guiding all of this stuff. And it seems like all of it is for no purpose. But remember this, that God promised, or first of all, he planned all of these things in advance. And he promised the salvation of his people. 
And what do we learn from this? We learn from that, that in this day, in, in 65 AD, that the suffering of his people is part of God's plan. Understand this, that God is not weak, and he can't do anything about our suffering. Also, he's not unloving and isn't doing anything, but in fact, the suffering that his people are going through in this persecution is part of his plan. Everywhere persecution breaks out against God's people, do you know what happens? The gospel spreads. Nero wanted to stop the spread of the gospel. And it didn't stop. You know how I know? Because we're sitting here today proclaiming the exact same message that they heard in 65 AD. And then before that, all of the Jews, they wanted to stop the apostles by persecuting them. And they did. And you know what happened? The gospel spread to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And then even before that, they wanted to stop the message of the gospel. And what did the Jews do? They killed Jesus Christ. The Son of God. And what happened? The gospel spread. And you go back and all of the prophets of the Old Testament. Jesus says from Abel to Zechariah. That's not an A to Z. That's the first prophet to the last prophet. All of them were killed. And guess what happened? The gospel message spread. So Mark is reminding the people in this day that you're facing persecution. You're going through suffering and trial. And it's part of God's plan. It's part of God's plan. Understand this, that they, he wants them to understand their, their suffering has value. Their suffering has value in the kingdom of God. Well, what about you and your suffering? All of us come here today with something in our lives that isn't quite right. We live in the richest country that the world has ever known. We live with the most prosperity that the world has ever known. And yet, as Christians, we experience suffering of some sort on a day-to-day basis. What about your suffering? What do you need to face the things in your life to give you courage to face even your death, a lack of health, uh, to face a lack of wealth, or, or maybe an oncoming fear that you won't have enough to get you through retirement or Or you won't have enough to provide for your family. What's the thing that gives you courage to face all of the the different shiftings that seem to be happening in the United States under our feet? What's going to give you courage? It's not a message that all is going to be okay. And simply just put a smile on your face and think positive thoughts that won't work. The only message that will give you courage today is the same message that gave these people courage in 65 AD to face the suffering. It's the suffering, or it's the thing that's going to give you courage when your your spouse doesn't love you. It's the thing that's going to give you courage when your kids are disrespectful to you. Caleb, it's going to happen. I'm sorry. It's the thing that's going to give you courage when you have a terrible job or a terrible boss. It's the thing that's going to give you courage when nothing seems to be working right. God has promised and planned all of this out before we were here. and We can trust in the God that has done that. Finally, we see the gospel prophet in verses 4 through 8. We're given a picture of John the, the prophet. This is not John Mark. This is a different person that, than that wrote this gospel account. This is John the Baptist. 
and he's this wild man. I imagine he's got wild hair that, that just kind of sticks out all over the place. He's got wild clothing, camel skins, and he's eating wild food and locust and wild honey. There's all sorts of wild things about this man, John the Baptist. Uh, but before we see his attire and his diet, we actually see his message. Verse 4, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. John's message was simply this. You are a sinner in need of forgiveness. And so all of the people in Judea were told, Judea and Jerusalem and all the people in the surrounding countries, they heard about John and they went out to him and John baptized them. Now we hear that and we think, oh, that's not a big deal. That's what people who believe in God are supposed to do. But understand this, Jews did not get baptized. I was listening to uh, one of my friends, Ray Kanata in New Orleans. He was, he was talking yesterday about uh, the people that have come through his church, Redeemer Church, to be baptized uh, and he mentioned uh, in, in where they are in uptown New Orleans, there's a sizable Jewish population. And he says, you know, lots of Jewish people are coming through that church and they're hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when he gets to the point where he says, well, you know, you need to be baptized. They go, oh, I cannot do. Jews do not get baptized. That's not what we do. Why? Because fundamental to their belief is they are Jewish people. They're clean already. They don't need to be cleansed. But he has to remind them of the gospel of God's grace that, yes, even though they are Jewish, they need to receive a cleansing that is not of their doing. They need to receive the sign of baptism. Well, in, in this day, Jews didn't get baptized. It was not a prescription for them to be Jewish, to be baptized. If you were born racially a Jew, you didn't have to do it. But the Gentiles did. Here's what's amazing about what John is doing. He's saying, come and be baptized, Jew and Gentile alike. Everyone needs the forgiveness of sins. It's not up to you. It's not up to your birth, your pedigree, who you are that says you're saved, but only by having the forgiveness of sins. And so he proclaims the forgiveness of sins. And he says also, he gives a promise, the forgiveness of sins is a reality. It's not idle thinking. It's not wishful thinking. It's not something that you hope will happen. He says, if you are baptized by God, then you will receive true forgiveness of sins. Then we see the prophet's appearance. He says in verse 6, now John was clothed, or John, yeah, verse 6. John was clothed with camel hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locust and wild honey. Uh, so this wild appearance, uh, the camel skins and the weird diet, and that just points to us that, you know, God's message comes to us not in a way that we oftentimes like. Um, think about your political leaders and our political leaders. What, what, do, what do they wear? Um, they all wear the same thing. It's, it's the black suit or the navy blue suit with the red tie that indicates power. And they look good, um, except for some that have weird hair. And, and they have all of this stuff just right. And, and we want our political leaders to look just right. And we're reminded here that God's message comes to us in ways that offend our better sensibilities. Because it's not about the, the, the prophet himself, but the message he proclaims. We don't believe this message because it sounds good or it's wishful thinking or because... It's plausible. We don't believe this because the one that is delivering the message looks good. Thank goodness. 
We believe this message because it's true. And we can put our roots down in the message of who Jesus Christ is. You and I need to believe this message because it's true. Not because it makes us feel good. Not because the one that's telling us that message has anything good in himself, but because the message of Jesus Christ, the good news of who he is, is true. Finally, here we see the prophet's point. What's the point? Well, he points to Jesus. Look at the very end. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John's entire ministry was, Stop looking at me. Don't look at me. Don't merely listen to me, but look to the one that I'm proclaiming. Look to the glory of the one that comes after me. We're going to see him next week, and that is Jesus Christ. John, in in, uh, the lowest possible way, says that he is nothing compared to the one that's going to come after him. He says here, uh, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. In Jewish culture, in Jewish day, Jewish masters could not even force their slaves to untie their, their sandals because it was dirty and nasty. That was, you could not even force anyone else to do it. It was considered so disgusting. And John says, I am so unworthy. I I can't even untie his sandals. That's how great he is. He's pointing us to the one who is greater than John. Your hope, my hope, John's hope is not in John. It's not in how good John is. It's, it's not in John's baptism. It's not in all of the things that John did that were so great. But it's in the one whom John preached. Our hope is in Jesus Christ. Why is it in Jesus Christ? Well, he tells us because Jesus gives true transformation. The only transformation that really matters. That's what he's talking about there when he says, I baptize with water. He baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ gives true and lasting transformation. Well, we've begun the Mark's account with the gospel. And you need to remember this. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news is about him, not about you and what you do. The good news is about his coming into the world. And every single day, you need to begin with the gospel of Jesus Christ. You need to wake up and say, it's not about me, but it's about him um, recently, the, the, the newest uh, Star Wars movie came out. Maybe some of you saw that. Uh, and it's, it's a pretty good movie, exciting to watch. There's a moment in that movie that's really interesting. Um, there are two young uh, uh, people in the movie, and they meet Han Solo for the first time. And Han Solo, I just, I mean, Harrison Ford, you don't get any better than Harrison Ford as an actor. The guy's just amazing, right? And, and especially when he's playing Hans Solo, uh, he's, he's bold and he's, uh, he, he's very confident. And, and, it, and at every point, Hans Solo has the right answer for the right moment at the right time. And he rushes headlong into danger. He's the perfect hero. And he's, and he's talking about the Jedis and all these things with these two young people. And they're talking about all the amazing things that the Jedis can do. And Han Solo looks at them in a powerful moment in the movie. He says, it's true. 
all of it's true. And you just kind of, in that moment, in the theater, I remember watching it and having the wind knocked out of me because I thought, we live in a world where people want to know that it's true, that all of it's true. Here's the thing. Star Wars is false. None of it, absolutely none of it is true. It's all made up. And yet, there's something in our hearts that says we need something that's true so that we will look at at Harrison Ford when he says it and go, yeah, it's true. The good news for us is we have something that is actually true, the gospel of Jesus Christ. He is the Messiah that all of history is pointing to and all of history is about. It's true. He is God himself that came in the flesh that lived perfectly for you because you couldn't do it. He went to the cross to die the death that you deserved. It's true. All of it. Put your faith in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for giving us this glorious message We thank you that it's true. What what an amazing thing that we can believe in your son, Jesus Christ, and have salvation. I pray that we would truly believe it. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to close by singing our hymn of response. Number 468, My Faith Has Found a Resting Place. Number 468.